Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hey, everyone. It's your host, Nico Perino. I am back from Scotland to bring you another exciting episode of So To Speak, the free speech podcast. As our returning listeners know, every other week on this show, we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. For today's episode, I'm chatting with former ACLU president and New York law professor Nadine Strawson. She's sort of a regular on this show. Some of you may recall that she was featured on the Viewpoint Diversity panel we hosted at NYU last October. And I also spoke with her last August in the wake of the Charlottesville events. Today, we're sort of piggybacking on the Charlottesville episode in a way and talking about Nadine's new book, Hate, Why We Should Resist It With Free Speech, Not Censorship. The title speaks for itself. We're talking about hate speech, and we cover a lot of ground in this episode. Nadine and I discuss the Supreme Court's approach to hate speech. We discuss the efficacy of hate speech codes around the world. We cover Rwanda, Nazi Germany, student illiberalism, the psychic impact of hate speech, hate speech in social media, and much, much more. I really enjoyed this conversation. Nadine and I met and spoke in a conference room at Columbia University last month, and it was during graduation time. So if you hear a slight echo and uh, some distant revelry, that's why. Now I bring to you, again, the indomitable Nadine Strawson. Professor Nadine Strawson, thank you for coming on the show. I'm delighted to be here again, Nico. So let's jump right in. What's the law? In the United States, is there a hate speech exception to the First Amendment? Absolutely not. And so the many public pronouncements that we hear from politicians and journalists and even lawyers, all of whom should know better, that hate speech is not free speech. Howard Dean famously tweeted out that hate speech wasn't free speech last year. Absolutely. He did that when Berkeley had canceled Ann Coulter's scheduled speech there. And he said, it's not a First Amendment problem because hate speech is not free speech. Uh, And others have made the same misstatement. The Supreme Court never has identified a category of speech defined by its hateful or hated content or message and excluded it from First Amendment protection by virtue of its ideas or its message. In that sense, it should be distinguished from obscenity, which is a legally recognized label that the Supreme Court has applied to a a specifically defined subset of sexual expression that it has said is excluded from the First Amendment. Hate speech, I I put that in air quotes, so let your listeners visualize those every time they hear that term. And in my book, there are actual quotes around the term every time it is used, and other commentators do the same thing. The U.S. Supreme Court has consistently, repeatedly, and virtually unanimously rejected repeated calls to create a category of constitutionally unprotected Including last term, right, in Mattal v. Tam. 
It did so exactly in one of its most recent free speech decisions in June of 2017. And as you said, the case involved Simon Tam, an Asian American rock musician. And a past guest on this podcast. <laughs> oh, fabulous. Yeah. Right. I have to listen to that. Uh, he's incredibly articulate and, uh, and really has a specific message that he wants to convey through his music and including through the name that he chose for his band, which, by the way, consists of other Asian American uh, rock uh, musicians. And the name of the band is Trigger Warning. The slants. I actually had another interviewer who wasn't familiar with the case really react in horror when I, I made that, uh, said that name. Yeah, which is and, uh, typically yeah. a, a racial epithet associated with uh, the, the, the slant of uh, Asian eyes, I exactly. guess. Exactly. But Simon Tam was trying to reclaim. Exactly. Yeah. He was, as an Asian American who was proud of his ethnic heritage, he and the other band members chose that name for exactly the opposite reason of the denigrating and disparaging message that the U.S. Trademark Office ascribed to the name and therefore, under a federal statute, denied it trademark protection as disparaging or demeaning mm -hmm. on the basis of ethnicity. But this was a way of asserting pride and dignity and personal empowerment as well as uh, raising the level of pride on behalf of Asian Americans generally. So I think it's very interesting that when the Supreme Court 9 to 0 struck down that federal statute, uh, it was doing so in, it was it was taking a step that was affirming not only individual liberty but also equality, right? Uh, the equal dignity of Asian Americans to reclaim certain terms, to repurpose them in a way that affirms and celebrates their ethnic heritage and denies the disparaging impact that some people try to associate with it. And this is not unusual for certain affinity groups to to try and reclaim phrases or even epithets that have been used in a disparaging way against them. I think in the, that case, um, Matal V. Tam, they cited Dykes on Bikes, which uh, dealt with like a lesbian biker group. Uh, and, and they obviously weren't using that phrase as an epithet. They were using it to try and reclaim the phrase for themselves. And yet the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office initially denied Dykes on Bikes the right to their self-chosen uh, name of pride and empowerment. And after litigation, ultimately, Dykes on Bikes prevailed. One of the interesting aspects of litigation was to look at uh, comparisons of disparaging and demeaning ethnic slurs that had been denied protection uh, by the U.S. government versus those that were granted protection. And what you see, Nico, is what you see anytime there is an enforcement of uh, an inherently vague criterion such as disparaging or demeaning or degrading. Uh, it is so subjective that the enforcer automatically or necessarily is going to be arbitrary at best, unpredictable, uh, and at worst, outright discriminatory. Yeah, well, this 
Mattal v. Tam case follows a series of cases, as you alluded to, in which the Supreme Court has often unanimously supported the, the proposition that there is no hate speech exception to the First Amendment. There's Snyder v. Phelps, Texas v. Johnson, Cohen v. California, and a slew of other cases. And it would be really interesting if we could tell the audience what some of those messages were, because a lot of people might think, why, that shouldn't be hate speech, right? So Texas versus Johnson was burning the U.S. flag. Yep. And you're absolutely right that for many members of the public and politicians, that is hate speech. In fact, I think Donald Trump recently denounced flag burning as hateful speech that should be very severely punished. I think he 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 said that those who burn the American flag should have their citizenship revoked, if I'm, if, I'm re if I'm recalling it correctly. <laughs> that's a pretty severe punishment. Yeah. And Snyder v. Phelps involved the notorious Westboro Baptist Church, which uh, had messages that were disparaging not only of LGBT individuals, but also of Catholics and the Pope and the U.S. military. Uh, you know, but... Uh, the, their messages, even though we might well find them offensive and strongly disagree with them, they are addressing, as does flag burning, crucial issues of public policy in very vigorous, vibrant, unforgettable terms. And, and the Supreme Court rightly has said that, you know, we can't kid ourselves that prohibiting somebody from choosing a certain mode of expression or certain words to convey the expression, uh, that we can separate that from prohibiting conveying of a certain idea itself uh, because the language is chosen for its unique. The fact that it is uniquely offensive, I think, underscores the unique quality of, of the language that there can be no substitute that has the same passion and force. Yeah, and that brings us to our third case, Cohen v. California, where I believe the justice writing the majority opinion said there that one man's vulgarity is another man's lyric, correct? And that I can say on a podcast what I still cannot say on an over-the-air broadcast, the Supreme Court upheld the right to say, fuck the draft. And I still get bleeped when I talk about that case uh, in, uh, on these over-the-air media, which is which is ridiculous because the- It's the one place in America where you really can't say fuck anymore. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, it really underscores the, the the subjectivity here that that, that would be seen as being so offensive uh, by some people, those who wield enough power to regulate uh, important, still important media for some people who can't afford access to- mm -hmm to other kinds of media. Uh, and at the time, and this is really important because the case was decided in 1971. Are you I talking believe. about FCC v. Pacifica? No, no. I'm talking about uh, Cohen versus California. Oh, yeah, okay. Cohen versus California, uh, the fuck the draft case. And at that time, that word was incredibly offensive. And I think it's really important to, to stress that to today's audience where it's just become a very commonly used word. It was deemed to be so offensive and so upsetting and so hated that the chief justice pretty much 
ordered the ACLU lawyer who was arguing the case uh, in, on the free speech side uh, pretty much said it's not necessary to go over the facts of the case. The court is familiar with them. And of course, uh, he would have, I think, lost the case in some sense if he had yielded to that because that would have been a tacit acknowledgement that this word was so dangerous that it could be banned. Whenever you're ready, I might suggest to you that as in most cases, the court's thoroughly familiar with the factual setting of this case, and it will not, not be necessary for you, I'm sure, to dwell on the facts. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. While walking through that corridor, he was wearing a jacket upon which were inscribed the words, Fuck the Draft. Also were inscribed so discussions about hate speech aren't new. I mean, they go all the way back to 1971 in Cohen v. California, and you write at the end of your book in the conclusion that having been thinking, reading, speaking, and writing about hate speech since 1977 when the Skokie controversy erupted, I had reached a point when many years ago I refused to accept more invitations to do any additional writing on the issue. So why'd you write a book on the issue? Well, the issue once again became very heated. It's always at a simmering level throughout my entire adult lifetime, but it reached a boiling point starting a few years ago in the wake of Ferguson and the increasing student activism in behalf of very important causes that I so strongly support, racial justice and gender equality and immigrants' rights and, and so forth. As a, a veteran of the campus activism of the late 60s and early 70s, I was thrilled to see this resurgence of student engagement and involvement, which we hadn't seen for a number of decades. But I was dispirited to see increasing indications that too many students considered, and even faculty members and others, considered free speech that extended even to hated and hateful ideas as being their enemy, rather than what I had always been convinced it is, an essential ally. And so, you know, being an educator and an advocate, Nico, I felt that I had not been sufficiently effective in either role, nor had those uh, who others who supported my position, because we hadn't convinced uh, these students. And so I took it upon myself as a challenge to see whether I could make the case more persuasively than I had in the past. And I'm, I tried my best to be really open-minded to uh, possibly reconsider my past conclusions on the issues. Uh, I revisited um, sources that I had not for a long time, including the pioneering law review articles in the late 1980s and early 90s that initially advocated hate speech codes. And I want to get to those later in the podcast, okay. Mary but, Matsuda and Richard Delgado, because they're worth Lawrence. addressing head on. Exactly. And, and, and then there were intervening um, decades during which a number of European countries and Canada, Australia, New Zealand, many other democratic countries around the world had adopted and enforced laws restricting hate speech. So I wanted to see what the track record there was. Conversely, I wanted to look at the track record in the United States, which does not enforce hate speech uh, censorship laws, but has been aggressively utilizing alternative 
alternative measures for redressing the harms that hate speech is thought or feared to cause, such as discrimination or discriminatory violence or psychic injuries. And my conclusion was that, uh, as it had been in the past, but now with much more and much more recent evidence, that despite their wonderful, noble intentions of uh, de decreasing violence and discrimination and increasing individual uh, psychological well-being and individual dignity and equality, those are all great goals, but hate speech laws are at best ineffective in promoting those goals and at worst counterproductive and moreover, counter speech and other non-sensorial measures have been wonderfully effective. I want to ask you about this counter speech argument because it's something that we in the free speech community like to use often in, in, in arguing for more speech as a solution, not, not censorship. But is counter speech the most effective way to resist, and this gets to the title of your book, why we should resist it with free speech, not censorship, that is hate speech. Uh, is it the most effective way to counter hate speech or is just ignoring it the most effective way? Because I, I think about the sort of resistance uh, that Milo Yiannopoulos and Richard Spencer get in the headlines that those generate. And I think that just adds more oxygen to the fire that they're trying to ignite. And the Student Press Law Center famously wrote during the campus protest last year against hateful speakers that the best thing students can do is just ignore them. Don't feed the troll, so to speak. I absolutely agree with that. And I use the term counter speech very broadly as any exercise of anybody's free speech rights in a way that is strategically designed to counter either the occurrence of hate speech or its potential harm. And I actually say uh, in the book, somewhat paradoxically, in at least some situations, the most effective form of counter speech might well be silence. And I hadn't realized that the Student Press Law Center had made that point. Thank you. I will cite them in the future as well. Uh, I believe the, they made it in their, their student activism handbook okay, that they put the, out last year. I, I'm probably The not organization that I, that I do uh, quote as having made that point in a guide that... Oh, that's it, actually a Southern Poverty oh, yeah, Law Center. Oh, I'm, that's, that's, I'm confusing okay, my SPLCs. Yeah, oh, okay, okay. So <laughs> I do actually cite the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is uh, generally well-respected for its uh, aggressive, vigorous monitoring of hate speech and hate crimes, including on college campuses. And before the 2017 to 18 current academic year began, on uh, reacting to information that the alt-right and white supremacists were going to be aggressively recruiting on campus, the SPLC issued a guidance to students about constructive steps they could take to negate the potential adverse impact of such recruiting efforts. And 
the theme that they stressed over and over and over again is while it might be morally satisfying to try to shut them down or shout them down, or even worse, to engage in violent counter-protests, you are just playing into their agenda, exactly as you say, Nico, giving them the attention that they crave, which often also garners sympathy, creating them into free speech martyrs. Now, uh, there are other things that you can do that, that can give you the moral satisfaction and also rebut their ideas. I agree with the SPLC that SPLC that uh, one thing that would be positive would be having your own separate affirmatively oriented event where you're celebrating positive values such as diversity and inclusivity and equality, but uh, do not use it in a way that draws more attention uh, to the alt-right. To the contrary, you should draw attention away from their event. Yeah, and I don't want to speak in black and white terms here. Sometimes the best response to hateful speech is more speech and not just more speech, very vocal and animated speech. Uh, I think it's a quote in your book, though it might be a quote I'm pulling some, from somewhere else. I don't remember it off the top of my hand, but someone was discussing during the rise of Nazism that there, there was too much silence. And in the places where voices were raised up against Nazism, such as in Denmark, the effects of the Holocaust weren't as uh, pronounced as they were in other parts of Europe. Did that come from your book? You're exactly right. And I was citing, uh, quoting R.E.A. Nyer's yes. wonderful book, and I know that you've interviewed him about that as well. No, it's a strategic decision that must be made in each case. What is the most effective response? And I, I, I have to say that in terms of um, trying to persuade people not to join or become supportive of white supremacists or other hateful organizations, or even trying to recruit people away from them. I've been reading more and more about wonderful efforts that are being made. And again, contrary to our probably initial superficial reaction to just argue and be fierce and be determined and be condemnatory, not surprisingly, those are not the tactics that work the most effectively. And I've been very moved and inspired to read about very painstaking, compassionate conversations, ongoing conversations that have been engaged in by not only uh, experts, but just members of the community, including African Americans and other minority folks who want to do their best to try to convert somebody away yeah, like, from racism. Like Daryl Davis, who you might be familiar with, a black man in Maryland who converted dozens of members of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, not, I don't know if convert is the right. Well, he, he changed their mind. They are no longer white supremacists. They are no, mem no longer members of the Ku Klux Klan. Not only are they no, mem no longer members of that group, they're now Daryl Davis's friends, and they gave him their Klan robe. And I visited him in 2016, I believe, or maybe it was 2017, uh, and visited his garage and looked at some of those Klan robes. And he said, I did it not by condemning, but rather by showing them through force of demonstration that th their ideas were wrong. I started here with Klan people in Maryland, and I went up north, down south, Midwest, and west. So in the process of talking with these people, I'm realizing that they're human beings, but they have flaws. They're realizing that I'm a human being, 
and I might have a little more to offer them than they already have. This is what Jonathan Rausch talks about in his book, Kindly Inquisitors, uh, and in a past podcast with me about the fight for gay rights. He said, you know, I didn't condemn, I didn't ask for censorship. I just showed them that they were wrong through how I lived my life and with the, the force of my arguments. And Andrew Sullivan did the same thing in his fight. And it's not only arguments, because there is a lot of evidence that people who have certain I fixed ideas are just not going to be persuaded by evidence. But it's often a matter of prejudice that arises from ignorance about other people. So just relating to them on a person-to-person -person basis makes a huge difference. It's common sense, but it actually accords with an enormous amount of sociological analysis and actual experience. What's the alternative? The alternative is you censor them, you throw them in jail, and do you change their mind? <laughs> they're, they're, you it's know, like breaking the thermometer. You, you, the, you, you, know, you might no longer know what the temperature is. You, don't, you won't know what the temperature is, um, but it doesn't change the temperature. And, and one of the examples I wanted to give is uh, pertinent to one of the major Supreme Court cases we mentioned earlier, Snyder versus Phelps, involving yeah. the Westboro Baptist Church, because uh, that's a family operation, uh, the Phelps family. And w Megan Phelps Roper, who had been born into the church, I think she was the granddaughter, a granddaughter of the founder, went online specifically you know, she was raised in the ideology, completely believed in it, uh, was dedicating her life to recruiting other people to its viewpoint. So she goes online for purposes of doing that. But as a result of these patient, long-term conversations in which there is compassion shown for her as an individual, while still condemning her ideas, but not her, right? Uh, she gradually came to change her views, and she repudiated them in an extraordinary piece in the New Yorker magazine. Yeah, I remember seeing that. And so if you can, and, and there's somebody else named Christian Piccolini who's done a TED Talk, and he's done a book uh, for more than, I think for about 10 years, a big portion of his fairly young life. He was the leader of an extremely racist, white supremacist, violent, violent uh, group, and um, he too, through human connections, not only repudiated his former ideas, but has now created an organization called Life After Hate, which does um, nothing but that for uh, now they've reached hundreds of people. Yeah, it's cliche at this point, but that that speaks to the Martin Luther King quote that uh, hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. A lot of cliches have a lot of truth in them. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask about the international approach because we sort of tipped our hat to it. Most other countries have hate speech laws of one form or another. And actually speaking to the, the past uh, question as to whether hate speech laws actually work, the Anti-Defamation League took a look at the world and and looked where the highest rates of anti-Semitism were, and uh, the United States had among the lowest rates of anti-Semitism. Now, we are the only one of the only countries that doesn't have hate speech laws. Correlation does not equal causation, but you know, at the very best, it does. It it, it might mean that. Uh, hate speech laws aren't necessary to avoid anti-Semitism. Well, but we can go further because if there, we can certainly show that countries that do have very strong anti-hate speech laws 
um, still have enormous and growing problems of anti-Semitism. So that shows that even when those laws are strictly enforced, they are not effective in reducing uh, anti-Semitic attitudes and speech and discrimination and worse yet, violence. So uh, this is a very poignant issue to me as the daughter of a Holocaust survivor who was almost killed at the Buchenwald concentration camp. Germany and France have some of the strongest anti-hate speech laws in the world, which are enforced very strongly against anti-Semitism. So, for example, in France, Le Monde, a major uh, center-left newspaper, kind of equivalent to the New York Times in this country, was actually criminally convicted because of a negative statement about a particular policy of the Israeli government. That and a comic has been criminally prosecuted repeatedly, and I believe convicted, uh, for making jokes with anti-Semitic uh, connotation to them, or even maybe they're even explicit. Uh, so, I mean, very strict concept of anti-Semitism, and yet we've seen horrific examples of uh, mass violence and, and individual violence against Jews and rising levels of anti-Semitism such that French Jews are, are fleeing the country in droves. In Germany, you know, again, a uh, country of particular concern to me given my personal background, um, there have been repeated uh, incidents recently that have been of such concern that, and, and incidents of violence, um, of such concern that Chancellor Angela Merkel, for the very first time ever uh, in German history, recently appointed a cabinet-level commissioner on anti-Semitism. And on the... Uh, anniversary of Israeli Independence Day on April 20th, Brett Stevens, a columnist in the New York Times, was writing about these recent upsurges of anti-Semitic violence. Well, some and of it has to do with changing demographics as a result of influx of a lot of new immigrants from the Middle East, correct? Th that can be caused, but we're talking about what is an effective solution. Yeah. Is punishing hate speech going to deal with that cause that some people have, have pointed to, along with, in fairness, uh, the resurgence of the far-right parties in both countries. We certainly have seen as well, and anti-Semitism is certainly fueled from, from both of those sources. But I was so chilled when Brett Stevens wrote, and I don't think he's prone to hyperbole, he literally said, and I, these words are burned in my brain, it's not a paraphrase, to be a Jew in Europe now is to be living on borrowed time. Wow. This despite uh, strong anti-hate speech laws that are strictly enforced. There is, a, there is an, another example, famous example of a man being found guilty of hate crimes for filming his pet dog giving a Nazi salute uh, in response to a cue that was either gas the Jews or Sieg Heil. And he, he, the way he explains it, he was doing it as a joke for his girlfriend and he took a video of it. It ended up going viral on YouTube. 
but he was arrested and and found guilty of a hate crime as a result of that video. And another recent example, which I read about in the forward a couple of weeks ago, an 89-year-old German woman who engaged in some form of of Holocaust denial was sentenced to prison and, and sent off to prison. Now, do I condone denial of the Holocaust? Of course not. But is sending this woman to prison going to do anything useful for remedying the actual causes of anti-Semitic violence uh, and hatred in Germany? Just create a martyr. So I want to move, well, actually, there's, on, while we're on this topic of international laws on, on hate speech, there was something that you wrote in your book that really struck me that I didn't know before. Uh, there was a lot in your book that I didn't know before. Oh, but thank the, you. Since you're so knowledgeable, that's a big compliment. <laughs> but the, the Soviet Union proposed that all UN member countries be required or encouraged to pass hate speech legislation. I didn't know that. So this was the genesis of the internet or the initial uh, effort in, shortly after World War II when the United Nations was being formed. And uh, the Soviets consistently were the ones who initiated and led the charge to require member states through first the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and then through subsequent international human rights treaties, the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights, and so forth. It was the Soviets and its communist allies who were the ones that were leading the charge to do that. And the United States, with all of the democratic countries, you know, the UK and the Scandinavian countries and other European countries, uh, opposing it, the United States was then represented in the United Nations by a widely revered figure, justly so, in my opinion, Eleanor Roosevelt. And she put her finger on exactly what the problem is with those laws, that because they are so inherently, inescapably vague and subjective, they become an enormously powerful tool that gives unfettered discretion to government officials who are enforcing them, and they can be enforced to suppress dissent, to suppress speech by disfavored or unpowerful uh, minority groups. And that's exactly, and those, and, and the proposed international laws, by the way, were modeled on provisions in the Soviet constitution and constitutions of other communist states. And guess what? That's exactly how they enforce their own laws to suppress dissent. Uh, it didn't help those who were victims of the pogrom, pogroms. Or, uh, exactly. So, you know, it's, <laughs> the millions. The, it, it's the worst of both worlds. We are seeing, and, and we haven't given examples really of serious uh, policy discussions that are being, even by political candidates and by elected political officials, which are being punished as hate speech in Europe. Uh, so we really have, the, and I could give examples if you'd like, the book has many, uh, and many contend that the major victims of suppression, including the chilling effect, are mainstream, moderate, or conservative viewpoints, uh, rather than far right, or for that matter, far left extremist viewpoints, because uh, you know the extremists, as we alluded to earlier, kind of like getting the attention uh, that they get when they're threatened or with prosecution or actually prosecuted, whereas those in the mainstream don't want to be accused of hate speech, so there is massive self-censorship including on these urgently important policy issues having to do with immigration and race and gender. 
Uh, and so we're not getting the robust debate that we need in a democratic republic. And we're also not uh, effectively combating not only anti-Semitism, but Europe has had horrible problems of violence against uh, immigrant communities, against Roma and gypsy communities, against other ethnic minority communities as well. Well, there was a famous moment, I believe back in 2015, where Angela Merkel was talking with Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook. Uh, it was, they, they thought it was a private conversation, but they were still mic'd up, what's known as a hot mic. And Angela Merkel asks Mark Zuckerberg what he's going to do about all the criticism Germany's receiving for allowing so many migrants from the Middle East to the country. And Mark Zuckerberg said, we're working on it, which, which goes to show that even policy discussions regarding immigration, uh, how we should approach immigration, are being approached by governments and not as a argument, but as or rather as how should we censor these discussions so as we so as to accomplish whatever we think is the end good in this conversation. And of course, now uh, Germany has passed a law which is probably going to be copied by other uh, countries, some democratic and some decidedly not democratic. Um, uh, that has um, sort of corralled, coerced Facebook and other online intermediary companies to uh, become the government's agents in in punishing hate speech. With uh, that is that the companies are threatened with enormous fines, uh, sixty million dollars uh, for the company and five six million dollars for an individual officer of the company if they. They do not very quickly take down something that is flagged as hate speech or otherwise illegal speech under German law. And you provided a figure in your book. I think you wrote that it was something like 280,000 hate speech, quote unquote, hate speech comments are removed by Facebook every month. And or that was Facebook's own number last year, 288,000 per month. That was before the German law went into effect. Uh, at that point, Facebook had 10,000 people working as censors around the world. In response to the German law, they said they were doubling that to 20,000, plus we have all of the algorithms. And so the opportunities for, uh, for the most massive suppression of anything that any one of 20,000 people or algorithms deems to be hateful is just... It, it's stupefying. and Well, it's I, worth considering how the incentives work there. If I am Mark Zuckerberg and I'm, I'm working in this global community and I risk $60 million in fines for every one hate speech comment that I don't take down, I'm just going to cast a wide net. Anything that's remotely controversial, I'm going to take down. And we, we see that the, these algorithms and these people aren't super sophisticated because a lot of times anti-hate speech gets exactly. taken down. And that's what happened immediately after the law went into effect on January 1st. Uh, somewhat predictably, the first two takedowns and blockings of entire sites were of uh, two leaders of Germany's extreme right-wing party, the Alternative for Deutschland. Now, we may be offended by the comments which were derogatory toward uh, certain Islamic and Arabic immigrants, but uh, this is a significant party that got 
13, almost 13% of the vote in the last German national elections last fall. If they have those ideas, I would rather hear them than not hear them. Uh, hot on the heels of taking down those comments and blocking their, their accounts, um, Facebook also uh, took down the, the satirical comments by a satirical online publication in Germany that was mocking, I'm sorry, it wasn't Facebook, it was Twitter, I'm sorry. Not uh, that, they, not, they, they all not, have the same not policies. That, not that that matters, right? It, it applies to any online intermediary that has more than two million Satire users. Satire is a tough case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why, that's why you know, the jesters and, and the, the satirists, uh, you know, Voltaire being one of them, were often able to skirt around criticism of the crown because it's hard to quite understand what they're saying without a careful reading. And, and so you have these 10, 20,000 people reviewing all of these comments. They may not be in the United States, and we know that comedy doesn't travel well across borders. They can't tell whether this is satire or not. So they, and, and if the risk is $60 million fine, you just take it down. And, and exactly, but even, you know, even in this country, we know that humor and satire is very jeopardized. I need not tell you that, Nico, mm -hmm. because um, too many people will just not take context into account and just say, I'm offended by that word, period, and, and rule certain words or certain ideas, certain topics completely off limits. I want to talk a little bit about campus here because you were talking before about what gets considered hate speech internationally. I want to talk a little bit about what gets considered to be hate speech on campus. And I should note before we pivot that when Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook were first trying to develop their hate speech policies, uh, they went to a former student of Stanford and he developed the policies based on Stanford's hate speech codes. Uh, and lo and behold, the they they cast a wide net, they're over broad, they're over vague, and they sweep within their ambit speech that they hadn't intended to sweep within their ambit. And Jeff Rosen um, wrote a great piece about this called The Delete Squad, and we did a previous podcast about this as well. But I, I, if I were in, in Facebook's uh, legal counsel office, I would not recommend campus speech coaches. Well, because every single one that has been challenged, some by the ACLU, many by fire, every single one has been struck down as vague and overbroad. And uh, you know, my book, I think, makes a, a compelling case that it is impossible to write a hate speech code that is not over Well, Dovey, Michigan in the 80s, they wrote a hate speech code to protect minorities and the first two people to be brought up onto the hate speech code were themselves minorities. It's uh, I, I, it's easy to to say in general. Oh, I could write a code that I know the language that I would ban that is really dangerous. So I could write it. And since the devil is in the details, one of the chapters in my book is essentially throwing the challenge to readers to do it yourself. Try to construct a hate speech code that is not uh, inherently vague and overly broad. And I painstakingly go through all of the elements that any such law should include, such as what groups are protected, what kind of harm counts, what is the connection that has to be shown, if any, between the speech and the harm, what is the mental intent, if any, uh, that the viewer should have, what, are there affirmative defenses, and so forth. And I mean, I'm not trying to skew it. I, I, I literally am trying to be as objective as possible, having drawn on 
every single hate speech law in the world that has been enacted or proposed, and I give people alternatives that they can choose among. In an earlier edition of the book, I, I said something that got taken out only because of space limitations, but I say it in many interviews. Uh, I challenge to audience members, if you think you can come up with a code that is not uh, so overly broad and so subjective and vague that you would entrust your free speech to it, uh, then please send it to me. Uh, my email address is nadine, N-A-D-I-N-E dot strossen, S-T-R-O-S-S-E-N at N-Y-L-S stands for New York Law School, where I teach, .edu. And by the way, uh, this is an opportunity to make an important First Amendment point. Uh, U.S. law does already provide certain specific situations when speech with a hateful message, along with other speech, in certain contexts may be punished. That's context not content. In other but words, it's not the viewpoint of that message. It's not that the matters. viewpoint. It's not the content. Mm -hmm. It's that if in a particular context, speech with that content, with that viewpoint, directly causes specific, serious, imminent harm, then it may be punished. So a genuine threat or intentional incitement of imminent violence or targeted harassment. So those existing standards of First Amendment law do avoid the vagueness and overbreadth problems. Can you go beyond that and write a code that reaches other speech that doesn't cause such an immediate direct harm, but uh, people who want to censor hate speech beyond that are concerned about a more vague, speculative harm or they just want to suppress the viewpoint because they consider the viewpoint to be loathsome. Can you write up a, a law that would do that, that passes the uh, specificity and narrowness test? Well, if any of our listeners write to you, I would urge them to also copy, so to speak, at thefire.org because if there is one, I would love to read it on the show uh, and maybe bring you back to address it. Going back to the question I uh, pivoted from earlier, what counts as hate speech on a college campus? I'm really struck by three recent examples. Uh, one was when political commentator Guy Benson, who's an editor at Town Hall, he's a conservative, went to speak at Brown. I believe it was earlier this year, but it might have been last year. There was an effort to have him disinvited. They, there was a there was a protest effort um, that called for censorship, and they did so on the justification that he advocated for free market principles, conservative principles. And the argument was that those principles, when enacted in policy, uh, are to the detriment of marginalized communities, and therefore his speech was hate speech and does violence against these communities. Another example that really struck me was at Emory University before the election in 2016, where a group of students, presumably who supported Donald Trump, Trump chalked Trump 2016 all over campus. Students marched to the president's office and demanded action for this very basic 
political advocacy on college campuses. When I was on a college campus, there was chalk everywhere in uh, support of the various political candidates in that presidential election. And then the third is when the, uh, I believe it was the executive director of the ACLU of Virginia, or maybe the legal director. Executive director. Yeah, and, and the aftermath of Charlottesville went to the College of William and Mary to give a speech about hate speech and, and the ACLU's position in that case. Actually, it wasn't. This, I mean, not that it would matter, but it's especially ironic that her topic was rights of camp students on campus to protest. So she was talking to students about their free speech rights to protest. Yeah. And she was trying to, I should to say. To which she was protested and the event was ultimately shut down with slogans being chanted, the revolution will not sustain the constitution and like the ACLU is a white supremacist organization. Liberalism is white supremacy. Yeah. And, and, and Nico, I know you know this, but I want to stress to the audience that freedom of speech does extend to protest, which I would define quite broadly to include uh, brief heckling uh, and shouting, so long as it is not so sustained that it literally prevents the event from going forward. And that was the deliberate intent of these demonstrators, as they proudly chronicled and boasted about in a YouTube video that, that they made and posted. Yeah, and all three of these cases, though, we're talking about policy or legal issues, things so that at the core of what a university is supposed to discuss, but students are interpreting these these. Uh, these arguments as hate speech. Anything that I find intolerable, more or less, is is hate speech. And this is concerning to anyone who cares about the marketplace of ideas on a campus, but also goes to show what people will call for censorship of in the case of hate speech codes being implemented on campus and being held constitutional by a court. It's so interesting. I mean, any, quote, hate speech code that uh, suppresses merely because of disagreement with the ideas, I would uh, oppose, you know, the famous statement uh, attributed to Voltaire, I may disagree with what you say, but I defend to the death your right to say it. Uh, and also, I would oppose any uh, law on campus or elsewhere that punished speech that had less than a direct, immediate connection to uh, specific serious harm. I don't want to... But they, they say it is harmful. They say that these, this speech is violent, that it oppresses marginalized communities, that it denies their humanity. And these arguments are giving credence in the, the most widely read newspapers in our country. I'm looking right now at an article by Lisa Feldman Barrett, who you cite in your book, uh, published in the New York Times on July 14, 2017. The article's titled, When is Speech Violence? And in it, she argues that words can cause stress. And if prolonged stress can cause physical harm, then it seems that speech, at least certain types of speech, can be a form of violence. And this is something students have clinged on to. And my colleague, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, had a retort to this piece that I think you also cite in your book in which they say, well, okay, if you take that argument that words can cause stress and if prolonged stress can cause physical harm, then speech can be violence, then what about arguments with a significant other that are prolonged? Is If you're having a disagreement with your significant other, it's causing chronic stress, is that argument then a form of violence on you? If you're doing poorly at your job and your employer you know, tells you you need to, you need to pick it up and you've received two or three warnings, it's causing chronic stress, been detrimental to your physical health. Is that a form of violence as well? I mean, we've created a bright line distinction in this country between uh, 
words and violence. And I think that allows us to live in a pluralistic democracy, but there seems to be a movement on campus and off to blur that line. You're absolutely right. And I think it's um, wrong to deny that words can cause psychological, emotional, mental pain, which can manifest itself in physiological symptoms. Many of us have been subjected to hate speech. I certainly have been the subject of anti-Semitic and misogynistic speech, and not to mention anti-civil libertarian speech, which is a big part of my identity as well. Uh, I say that with a smile. I know I have not been subject to the persistent hate speech of uh, other people, but even those of us who have not faced that kind of hurtful speech have had words that insult our pride or uh, break our hearts or wound our dignity. So we know that words do hurt. But to allow government, including university officials, to punish all expression that can cause hurt feelings, including severely hurt feelings, uh, traumatic responses, is too much power when we think of the incredibly important political speech and speech about public policy issues, as you mentioned, interpersonal speech. I mean, basically, some of the most valuable and essential speech in our society would be subject to censorship. You know, think of the examples that you gave, Nico, on campus. I have no doubt from students that I've interacted with that many students are deeply psychologically traumatized by seeing pro-Trump messages or by hearing Donald Trump give a speech. For heaven's sakes, I have adult friends that go into depression when they hear uh, Trump give a speech. But is that really a free speech problem? That seems to be a problem with how we talk to ourselves and how we catastrophize things that might not be a catastrophe. Well, but we I think we can't Is deny that people re- have subjective adverse reactions that I do not want to trivialize, but following up on what you said, and by the way, what Lisa Feldman Barrett herself said, is that the appropriate response is not necessarily censorship. Even she said that. She said, you know, there are certain kinds of stress. Yes, stress, words can cause stress, and stress is often bad, but stress is not always bad. It's something that can be helpful to us in order to uh, surmount the difficulties that life is throwing at us. We practice through stress. And she actually gave an example of confronting uh, occasional hateful speech on campus. Uh, And she says, well, it's different if it's sustained and there's a persistent harsh environment. Uh, And even the law does recognize that a so-called hostile environment well, harassment is unprotected speech. Is, is unprotected. But short of that, being occasionally exposed, even repeatedly exposed to ideas that you consider to be hateful and that are upsetting to you, uh, there are ways that are more productive to you as well as to society to cope with it. And, and I know that Jonathan uh, and Greg addressed this in their uh, Atlantic Magazine article and other psychologists have written about it as well. I want to read something to you from a student. So Lindsay Shepard is a student at a Canadian college, and she was hosting a free speech 
event, I think, with Faith Goldie, a right-wing Canadian commentator. Uh, but the university imposed security fees on her event. She had to raise money. This is this is Canada, not the United States, so there's no serious prohibition on that that I'm aware of. She ultimately did raise the money, but there was a, a student at Laurier who, who responded with this Facebook comment. What the LSOI and Lindsay Shepard need to realize is that every time they plan an event like this under the banner of free speech and open inquiry, it takes weeks and months of work for us to emotionally process. It may just be an event to you, but this is our lives. This is generations of trying to heal. This is more than some petty crusade. You're doing actual damage to entire communities and people, and you don't even care. I want Lindsay Shepard to read this. I want her to know this shit hurts us. Please share. This doesn't strike me as a free speech problem. This strikes me as a problem of resilience. Well, exactly. So that there, this person uh, clearly is having some inability to deal in a productive, constructive way with ideas that she disagrees with. If she cannot deal with them in a campus setting with all of the support that uh, campus community provides, with all of the uh, psychological and counseling and other educational resources that a campus provides, how is she going to function in the real world where, by the way, her point of view is not going to be the majority point of view that it probably is on campus, but is going to be a minority point of view. Uh, how is she going to function in a workplace? How is she going to function as a citizen in contested, dealing with contested elections and, and public policy debates? So uh, as educators, uh, as compassionate human beings who want to make our young people people as happy and constructive and productive as possible, including to equip them to maximally be able to implement what their views of public policy are, we have to prepare them to, I like your word, resilience, to be resilient and to be able to withstand whatever harms they might uh, uh, receive themselves. You don't necessarily have to be harmed by speech. You can learn to rise above it, right? Eleanor Roosevelt, again, I mentioned her earlier, uh, she said, uh, words can only hurt us if we let them, right? And social psychologists and others, you know, linguists who have studied the uh, potential effects of hateful speech and, and other controversial speech have said, you know, it's all in the context. Even, even those uh, who have advocated hate speech codes in the United States, such as Richard Delgado and Mari Matsuda and Charles Lawrence, even they said you can't absolutely ban even the most reviled racist epithets such as the n-word because it won't necessarily be hurtful. It depends who said it and how it was received and what the uh, surrounding circumstances were. We can instill in our students and in everybody 
uh, the habits of mind that can uh, make them resist any potential negative impact on but themselves. But are our colleges and universities doing that? When they write these codes, they sort of they get they lend credence to the argument that these students at Laurier are making. They when they say that you know when they take for granted that these students are traumatized, and I, I don't think we should dismiss the idea that they're traumatized, but we should ask ourselves why are they they traumatized? They're just encouraging more and more of this behavior, and to the extent they move to the, to censorship and more and more of this behavior and this sort of thinking, and to the extent they move to censorship, they show that it can be an effective tactic to shut down those with whom they disagree. And, and so in my book, I do quote a number of social psychologists, including Jonathan Haidt and Pamela Paresky uh, and others, including uh, major studies that were done at, at Harvard and other major universities um, that say that uh, how you perceive the expression is what is the major determinant of what psychic impact is going to have on you. And I was very encouraged by studies of college students that show that uh, many of them can uh, just be completely impervious to the alleged, you know, potential slings and arrows of uh, anti-Semitic and anti-gay speech. Some of the experiments have been done. And in fact, uh, they tend to look down on the student or whoever is in, in making the disparaging remark. And by the way, ignoring is another tactic. If this student is going to be so upset by uh, whatever ideas would be uh, uh, expressed by that speaker, nobody's requiring her to go hear that speaker, right? So mm -hmm. she could ignore it. Yeah, yeah. I, well, you, to quote Shakespeare again, you <laughs> quoted the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Uh, th there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Exactly. We can control how we, we approach these issues. And another argument that students... And I, I should say... I. I had, it's not like I haven't dealt with these things yeah. before. I was bullied tremendously growing up, and, mm. and I had very poor reaction to it initially, and I didn't get the support that I need. And I think um, the educational institutions are doing a better job of that recently, but the way I overcame it was not through a third party, although I wish I would have had one, but you know, making jokes with those people who were bullying me. I neutered malice with oh. jokes, and I, I came up with these sort of techniques to make it more or less go away and to demonstrate to them that they couldn't get to me anymore. That's, that's very interesting, Nico. I'm sorry that you had that, but you made it into a learning experience. Well, so it to made me more, more resilient, resilient than I think I otherwise, otherwise would have been, been, and it taught me a lot about psychology, that if you give the bully what they want, you will just get more from the bully. And instead, I neutered their malice with jokes. I showed them that my skin was thicker than it had yeah, previously yeah. been, and that they were just wasting their time on me. And I know some people, unfortunately, don't, have the time to get to that sort of place or can't get to that place for one reason or another. But it, it, it does show that there are other tags. And, and at FIRE, we have this idea called the strong student model. That, the idea that we don't want to treat young adults, because most people who are in college are young adults, they're over 18, as wilting flowers. Yeah. That they are stronger than they think they are, that they can live in a pluralistic democracy. They don't need to carve out college as a place separate from our democracy, they can become full First Amendment citizens and deal with all that that entails, including speech that they might disagree with. And one of the arguments that I see in, in support of censorship today, which I didn't hear back in 2012 when I first started at FIRE, is that certain speech denies me my humanity. And I, I haven't been able to get 
a good pinpoint on what that actually means. Uh, Ulrich Baer, who I'm sure you're familiar with, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times calling for some of these hate speech codes, was on a panel at Kenyon College with Charles C.W. Cook and another professor, and he was asked by Steven Pinker uh, in the Q&A section, what do you mean, Ulrich, when you talk about denying someone their humanity? And he, he couldn't really give a good example, and then Steven Pinker pressed him continuously. He's like, well, who are some of these speakers you would deny a platform on campus? And Ulrich Baer said, I will not, I will not um, grant them the privilege of even speaking their name. Okay. So just to, for clarification, so who would you have in mind as who, who would uh, be denying the humanity of some students? Do you want names of speakers right yeah. now? I'll give it to, I don't think I need to give them the platform we had here that I actually don't think they deserve. <laughs> it's a bit of a, a setup. You, you can't even, you can't even no, utter I can their name names? Them. No, absolutely I can name them, but I won't name okay. them. Right but then how, how are we going to evaluate your claim if we don't even know who you're talking about? We just have to take your, your faith. You know who these people are, and when they come, you have the right to exclude them, but we can't okay. actually challenge your opinion as to whether those we're people... Not, we're not going to get an answer. <laughs> okay. It's using platitudes to dismiss the free speech argument uh, in a way that doesn't add any substance to what you're saying, because that's the problem with hate speech codes. That's what you talk about in your book. How do we write these codes in the way, way that doesn't sweep within their ambit speech that we don't want censored by these codes. And in this case, Ulrich Baer is unable to de define one of the justifications for censorship, denying someone their humanity. He's also unwilling to even state who these hate speech codes would affect. And I, and I also put this to the people who say that hate speech denies your humanity. Censoring denies people. Absolutely. You know what's core to my humanity? Yes. My ideas and being exactly. willing to express my ideas. I, I also, in my book, quote uh, Barack Obama, Ruth Simmons, uh, Van Jones, other activists, educated, edu educational leaders, political leaders who are African Americans, because they speak with special credibility when they repeatedly urge minority students, in particular, if precisely because you care about injustice, precisely because you want to bring about social reforms, you have a special responsibility to engage with people whose ideas you despise and consider dangerous and, and the ideas that you think are dangerous. And they hold up the model of the civil rights movement that uh, that's exactly what Martin Luther King and, and others did. Uh, and that they wouldn't have been effective if if they had not been willing to do that. Yeah, you quote John Lewis in the book. I, I don't want to spend three minutes flipping through the pages, but he more or less says we, we wouldn't have a civil he rights said, movement. He um, said, without vigorous freedom of speech, the civil rights movement would have been a bird without wings. Now, I have to point out to younger listeners, you will be shocked, I hope, to learn this, that in that era of the civil rights movement, it was his speech and Martin Luther King's speech that was considered to be hated and dangerous and was subject to censorship, including on many college campuses. Today, it is Black Lives Matter activist speech, a pipeline protest speech, others who are protesting uh, what they see as, as social injustices that are being treated as engaging in hateful speech and, uh, in fact, have been taken down by, by social media platforms disproportionately uh, for that reason. Criticizing the status quo always has been what is least protected and, uh, and the pr disproportionate victim of any 
any censorial law, including a hate speech law. I want to quote Ruth Simmons because she was so ahead of her time on this. She was the first African-American president of an Ivy League university and the first female president of Brown University. She took that position in 2001, and in her very first convocation address, before we started hearing all of these cries about uh, from students to protect me from any speech or idea that I consider unwelcome or that makes me uncomfortable, she said, you know what I hate? I hate it when people say that idea makes me uncomfortable. Learning at its best is the antithesis of comfort. And she actually points, she says, so if you're coming here for comfort, then go through that gone iron gate. Yep. Uh, but if you seek betterment for yourself and for your community, then stay and fight. You're quoting it almost verbatim. I just looked <laughs> at the quote. I've read it so many times. <laughs> I love it. And so that's the idea. Don't wilt. Fight. Fight back. Well, I want. Do you have? I know you have to catch a flight. Do you have time for two more questions? I do. Okay. Do you so, have time for two more answers? <laughs> I do. I do. Well, this this next one, I'm sure you've gotten many times, but I think is worth addressing for our listeners because I don't know that we've addressed it on the podcast. What do you make to the argument that free speech is what allowed for the tragedies in Nazi Germany and actually all of Europe uh, in those years and Rwanda and uh, and some of these other places where genocide has occurred and it's and it's been argued that free speech had a role to play so i'll take them separately and i know you kind of have to look at the factual cases on the ground so let's focus on nazi germany and rwanda okay so uh in nazi germany there actually were very strict anti-hate speech laws that were strictly enforced, including against anti-Semitic speech, including against anti-Semitic speech by leading Nazis. There were dozens of prosecutions and convictions, and the Nazis loved it. They used these trials as a propaganda platform to draw attention to their hateful messages and to uh, increase the sympathy and support, including by portraying themselves as free speech martyrs. Yeah, was Hitler was banned from speaking on college campuses in Bavaria, and I think Fleming Rose writes in his book that uh, Goebbels, his propaganda minister, made hay out of this. He said one among two billion people in the world is not allowed to speak in Bavaria, and that, that one, of course, is Hitler, and there were two billion people in the world in 1930-whatever. And the real pro and by, and by the way, the leading Jewish organization in Germany at the time uh, said that the laws were, by and large, being properly enforced. That it wasn't through lax enforcement or unprepared prosecutions um, that there were any problems. So the real problem was that there was actual violence by the Nazis. And we're not talking That went about, unpunished. That went unpunished. Rating Thank of you. newspapers. Yeah. yeah, political violence. And 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 assaults and physical attacks and even murders of Jews, uh, political opponents, uh, members of other minority groups. So, and you have to think, if you're trying to resist the Nazis with more speech, if that is your approach, but speaking out results in political violence and potentially harm to your family because the rule of law isn't being enforced, well, what's the incentive in that case to speak out? So the analogy would be in this situation, I guess, uh, 
if there were, well, the analogy in the United States would be if during the civil rights movement, those who did commit violence against civil rights demonstrators and leaders, sadly, uh, if there was no attempt to prosecute them. And we do know that uh, some of the Southern officials were not sufficiently uh, vigorous in their law enforcement, and the federal government came came to, to uh, as reinforcements. Yeah. Well, with Rwanda, I know Aryeh Nair has done some work on this and sort of an analyzing what happened on the radio there. Mm-hmm. In Rwanda, right, it was the case that what was happening on the radio would have qualified as speech accepted from the First Amendment under the Brandenburg Standard because they were calling for people to go and kill other people at a specific time and at a specific place. And also, I think Arye writes about this, that the government granted a monopoly to these radio stations, which prevented other radio stations that might have been able to speak out against them from grant getting a license for their messages. And and even more than intentional incitement of imminent violence, which was likely to occur, and so would That's the Brandenburg be standard. Con- yeah, thank yeah, you. Punishable. <laughs> um, there was also material support. I mean, the the radio was actually providing information. Here are specific locations where uh, these people are hiding, and here's how to get there. Go there and kill them. So um, that is clearly on the other side of this bright line distinction you mentioned earlier, Nico, between speech and and actual violence. Yeah, well, I want to ask you, I'm going to close up by asking you what the response has been to your book. And I'm particularly interested in the response on campus, because I know you've at least done one on-campus speech here in Columbia or at Columbia today. You might hear the graduates (laughs) outside the building celebrating their graduation. Have you been surprised by the response from students or and if that if so in what way has it been a good response a bad response a concerning response I've done so many campus talks on this topic in the last two years, even before the book came out. And so in that sense, the response, just saying that, the response is exactly what I wanted it to be, which is interest in hearing a pro-free speech message. And by the way, I do not take that for granted because on a number of campuses, simply advocating for free speech including with signs advocating free speech, has been attacked as hate speech. Uh, There are incidents that I'm sure you're familiar with. Well, it's just been maligned. There was an event at Harvard a couple of weeks ago in which our um, visiting fellow, Yaka Mushingama, who you might know, Mm -hmm. he has a podcast, Clear and Present Danger, the history of free speech. He was participating, and they weren't allowed to call the event, they weren't allowed to use the phrase free speech in the event because they thought it was a dog whistle for the right. So the the Harvard student government wouldn't fund them if they use that. So they had some like 4D uh, title. Yeah, yeah, it didn't make any sense. Uh, But they wanted to call their event something, something free speech. I'm grasping my head in horror. Um, uh, There was a recent incident at CUNY Law School. Josh Blackman, right? Yes. And so this to me was a new low point. We were talking, you gave some examples of campus intolerance for for free speech. Uh, I was somewhat hopeful as a law school professor that we had uh, stemmed this problem at in the law school context because, and in fact, in the summer of 2017, 
Heather Gerken, who had just become the first female dean of the Yale Law School, wrote something that was published in Time Magazine Online in which she commented that at that point, none of the incidents of campus suppression, shutdowns, shoutdowns uh, had occurred on a law school uh, campus. And she said, well, the reason is because in law school, we, of course, it, it's essential, integral to the education that students encounter different perspectives, learn to make arguments and counter arguments. You can't have a legal education without that. And so to me, it's a new low that we've now had a couple suppressive incidents on law schools. Lewis and Clark College, yes. I believe, with uh, Christina Hoff Summers and then Josh Blackman. Over and, and you know, and, and Josh Blackman was particularly dismaying because his subject was I think the title was something like, it was why freedom of speech is especially important on college campuses. And merely based on the title, as well as the fact that he was brought there by an organization called the Federalist Society. As far as I can tell, those were the reasons why students were protesting. Some of them also disagreed with his viewpoint about DACA, although it seemed that they really didn't know what his actual position yeah, his actual was position on was that, that he issue, supports the policy, but he but doesn't. not executive power. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they had signs that said things like, fuck the law and fuck free speech. Uh, so, so the <laughs> And I think it's no doubt just a matter of time before that, before I encountered that kind of complete opposition. Uh, Do you know but, how you'll handle it? Uh, that's, an it? that's a very, very good question because when my ACLU colleague uh, was shut down at, shouted down at the College of William and Mary, I immediately thought that can happen to any of us. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the best way to handle it? And I looked at the way she handled it. I looked at the way uh, Josh handled it. And I, I think they, they did as well as they could under, uh, under terribly adverse circumstances. My initial immediate reaction as to what I would like to be able to say to the and students. And you never know what you'll do in those situations. Yeah, I know. And yeah. But what I would like to convey to those students, but I don't know how I can do it, through bullhorns. So that's a, a separate issue. But here's the message I would like to convey to them. And I had the same reaction to the law students a couple, uh, more recently. I am so sorry that you feel such lack of self-confidence in your ability to engage in discussion and debate about these ideas, that you lack the confidence to explain to me and to other audience members what you think is wrong with our ideas. You know, I feel if I were a law school professor who had students who had those reactions, I would feel that I had failed you as a professor, that I had failed our society as an educator of future lawyers. Mm -hmm. So, because I, but I have a hard time. I would want to say it in a way that doesn't sound condescending, condescending yeah. or patronizing, and it's hard to. Uh, yeah. But uh, I mean, I think about it too. I think about what what I would do, and I I would encourage dialogue by saying I will take as many questions as possible. Mm -hmm. After this, after I'm done speaking, I'm willing to meet with any and all of you afterwards. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind that this isn't your event and this isn't my event. I was invited here by yeah. someone. Uh, so I'm going to defer to them to how they want the event to go. But if we want to pivot and just do Q&A for the rest of the yeah. time... I'll do it, but again, this isn't my event and this isn't your event. That, they, they have the right to organize that, it as that's, they see That's what Josh did, and I really admire his dignity and his um, patience 
and 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 Claire as well. I mean, she and Josh had a situation where uh, the students left after a, too long, but they, they got tired because they weren't getting the rise out of him that they were. Um, or they so went to the they, dean's they, office. They, they, re, they reduced his amount of time to speak, but they didn't completely eliminate. Clear, the ACLU of Virginia person literally could not get a word out. And so that raises the strategic issue of how do you communicate anything to them if they're shouting so loud that you can't make yourself heard. And so I thought you should have a whiteboard behind you on which you could write something. No, seriously, yeah. I've, th- I've thought about that. Um, yeah, so. I mean, it's not a bad idea. I try when I speak on campus to communicate with the organizers beforehand to say, in the case that this happens and mm. it hasn't happened to me before, what is our coordinated response going to be? Because I don't want to do anything that will be detrimental to your group. Here's how I'm going to re- address the group. And then I'm probably going to turn it over to you to handle it from there if I can't continue to speak. That, that's, a, that's a great idea. And so so far, you know, with... Some of them pay a lot of money to get speakers out. Yeah. You know, it's uh, honorariums and travel costs, hotels, they aren't cheap. And it's just a shame that this happens, this is happening with some degree of regu- regularity. I should say uh, I was at a conference here, a free speech conference here, in the, which Lee Bollinger of Columbia addressed a group of free speech activists, progressives, free speech activists. And he said, you know, I don't, I don't see what anyone's saying with the, the crisis for free speech on campus. I'm, I'm not seeing any of these illiberal actions uh, at Columbia. I just don't see it. And I'm thinking in the same semester in which he made those comments, a, the college Republicans had their event overtaken uh, and shut down by a group of protesters who didn't like the European politician who they were Skyping in. I'm like, Come on, uh, there, there's no issue here. If we, it's it's the equivalent of book burning. It mm. really is. If you burn a book because you don't want the ideas to be disseminated, mm-hmm. it's the same idea that undergirds shutting down a speaker. Yeah, I, but I, what my concern about you ask about the reaction to my book? I've been I've not been shouted down or shut down or censored in any way, and people come. Well, you also have a but lot I'm, of cred. But I may be preaching to the choir. That I can never tell that, right? Maybe I'm speaking only to people who already agreed with me. But in fairness, I've had a lot of anecdotal responses, including some of the Vine reviews on Amazon, where people say I was prepared to disagree with her and. Um, but my mind has been changed, and, and I've had quite a few individuals tell me that. And the, the question is, what motivated them to read it in the first place? Uh, a professor at uh, uh, at Kenyon College told me she said it didn't apply to me. I was speaking at the same conference you mentioned earlier, but she said she has had students say to her, why should I waste my time going to hear uh, a speaker that I know I'm going to disagree with? Well, I could go into mill. <laughs> I could go into mill and talk about how it, you know, it sharpens your ideas and does this, that, and the other. But um, listeners of this podcast have heard me go into mill quite a bit. But uh, I do hope people who disagree with you read this book. I think you're taking on the best arguments against free speech that are out there. Did you already debate Jeremy Waldron? Oh yeah, I had before, and his argument is is fine as far as it goes. Uh, I, I disagree with it, but um, even if I accepted it, it wouldn't persuade me that hate speech laws are are, are uh, the way the, the appropriate direction. He, along with um, the earlier writers uh, in this vein, Richard Delgado, Delgado Matsuda, Matsuda, and Charles yeah. Lawrence, uh, they make a very valuable contribution by pointing out what I call the potential harms of hate speech. Not to trivialize them, but as you and I discussed, we can make ourselves re- resilient so that we are not necessarily Mm -hmm. harmed by those who are trying to harm us through speech. 
Uh, and that was a very important contribution, even assuming for the sake of argument that the words do cause harm, that doesn't prove that censorship is an effective response, yeah. let alone that it's more effective than counter speech, anti-discrimination laws, enforcing laws against hate crimes, and so forth. So even if I granted 100% of his argument, I think I should still prevail. <laughs> well, it's an excellent book, but it's a book that wasn't written for me. It's written for the people, presumably, who, who would disagree with people like me and you. So I'd urge all of our listeners, most of whom I suspect will already agree with us, to buy the book, read the book so that they can sharpen their own arguments, but also to give it to someone. I was going to say, please give it to those who disagree with you. And, and somebody else did ask me this, Nico. Um, you didn't. It was, uh, 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 did I write this? It seemed that I wrote, wrote this specifically for liberals or so-called progressives, uh, those on the left end of the political spectrum. And I think that's right, because for various reasons, certainly libertarians, but also conservatives have been more supportive of free speech on campus and in many, but certainly not all contexts. And it has been the liberals and progressives who have been more supportive of censoring hate speech. So if you have liberal friends that uh, think that the way to deal with these very serious problems of hatred and discrimination and stereotyping, uh, if they, the more they care about those problems, the more they should read why censorship is at best ineffective and at worst counterproductive in dealing with those well, problems. Well, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, uh, America is nothing if the story of a pendulum that it swings one way and it has a way of swinging the other way. And we saw what censors did, tried to do, right-wing censors to the civil rights movement in the 60s. We saw what they tried to do to movies and video games in the 80s and 90s. Uh, conservatives seem to be bearing the brunt of censorship on campus these days. Uh, but you know, in the future, it might be liberals. And this is why we should we should stick with that maxim from Thomas More that we shouldn't cut down the branches to get to the devil because we'll have nowhere to hide when the devil comes after us. So Professor Nadine Strawson, thank you for writing this book and thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me, Nico. That was former ACLU president and New York law professor Nadine Strawson. Her book, it's called Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. This podcast is hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited, as always, by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. As always, you can email us feedback at sotospeak at thefire.org, and you can call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, I always ask you to please consider leaving us a review on iTunes because they help us attract new listeners to the show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>